0: So, just to remind us of why we are here, this is the Bhagavad Gita, Chapter 6. Day after day, I'll change a few of the terms just to make it more relevant. Day after day, the meditator, may, let the meditator practice the harmony of soul. In a secret place, in deep solitude, master of his or her mind, hoping for nothing, desiring nothing. Let him find a place that is pure and a seat that is restful, neither too high nor too low, with sacred grass and a skin, and a cloth thereon." That's to uh, keep dry, sitting on wet grass. On that seat, let him rest and practice meditation for the purification of the soul, with the life of his body and mind in peace, his soul in silence before the one with upright body, head and neck, which rest still and move not, with inner gaze which is not restless but rests still, with soul in peace and all fear gone and strong in the vow of holiness, let him rest with mind in harmony, his soul on me, his God supreme. The meditator who, Lord of his mind, ever prays in this harmony of soul, attains the peace of nirvana, the peace supreme that is in me. Meditation is a harmony. Not for the one who eats too much, or for the one who eats too little. Not for the one who sleeps too much, or for the one who sleeps too little. Very Benedictine principle. A harmony in eating and resting, in sleeping and keeping awake. A perfection in whatever one does. When the mind of the meditator is in harmony, and finds rest in the spirit within, all restless desires gone, then he is one in God. Then his soul is a lamp whose light is steady, for it burns in a shelter where no winds come. When the mind is resting in the stillness of the prayer of meditation and by the grace of the spirit sees the spirit and therein finds fulfillment, then the seeker knows the joy of eternity, a vision seen by reason far beyond what senses can see. He abides therein and moves not from truth. He sees himself in the heart of all beings and he sees all beings in his heart. This is the vision of the meditator of harmony, a vision which is ever one. Whoever in this oneness of love loves me in whatever he sees, wherever this person may live, in truth, this person lives in me. So I don't know what needs to say any more than that, really. So yesterday, I, was, I ended uh, with the words of Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching on stillness. Stillness is the ruler of movement, the ruler of haste. Returning to the source is stillness. And I drew a link between this and the teaching of the gospel, the words of Jesus, set your troubled hearts at rest and banish your fears. Come to me, all you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. When we think about this stillness or this rest today in a culture that has become rather alienated from this contemplative perspective on life, contemplative wisdom, contemplative values, uh, stillness often seems something negative, very similar to stagnation. Still economy would be a stagnant economy. Just being still means perhaps you can 't move or or rest means relaxation or recreation or entertainment so if we 're going to understand uh, the meaning of change and how we cope with change, how we find this still point at the center of ourselves, uh, we have to do a little bit of redefinition. The word uh, in the Christian tradition that best describes this concept of stillness or rest is the, the Greek word Hezekiah, you know, Mount Athos, the monks of, orthodox monks and the prayer of the heart, uh, Jesus prayer, that is uh, very much at the center of orthodox uh, Christian spirituality, uh, uses this word hesychast and speaks about the people who practice it, the meditator, is a hesychast. And, but the word, uh, actually, is is older than the Christian tradition. Hezekiah was originally a Greek goddess, the goddess of tranquility and peace. And she was the daughter of justice, no peace without justice. But as the Christian contemplatives began to try to find uh, the language to express their uh, discovery and their experience of the contemplative experience within Christian faith, then they adopted this key key term uh, to describe it. Gregory, the theologian, one of the early teachers of the Orthodox, of the Eastern Church, said it is necessary to be still in order to have clear communion with God and gradually to bring the mind back from its wanderings. This stillness of mind or stillness of heart, stillness of body uh, purifies Purifies the mind, and is the the stillness of full wakefulness. When they speak of the, when we translate the word mind, uh, we have to, or when we use the word mind in this context, we have to realize that they had more than one word for mind, and uh, what we normally think of mind is, you know, IQ and uh, how clever we are, and do we get, we pass exams, and they uh, would have recognised that as as intelligence, it varies from one person to another, or even from one, even from one day to another. Uh, but uh, the word that they use to describe this purification is noose. so it's the deeper mind or buddhi, probably in uh, Sanskrit. So it's this deeper level of conscious intelligence and awareness. And, of course, they recognised that there is an inner and an outer hezekiah. And when these are in harmony, when they're working together, so when our lifestyle is actually in harmony with our inner uh, practice, then we are led to the heart center, to the deepest source of consciousness. And this begins, as I was saying the other night, uh, in the same way that they understood silence as having these different spheres, different levels that we have to pass through. We practice the, the silence of the tongue. That's why we try not to talk unnecessarily on a retreat like this just to give us a bit of experience of the discipline of the tongue, Uh, the the silence of the tongue, then the silence of the whole body, which is what we practice when we sit still in meditation. The physical stillness is not unimportant, John Mayne said, actually, it's very important And it may be our first step in discovering how we can go beyond desire. So at a very basic level, you know, not scratching your ear. um, Or unzipping your bag in the middle of meditation or blowing your nose in the middle of meditation. Uh, Difficult for us because we're not trained for that. People often ask me what's the difference between Buddhist and Christian meditation. And um, the simplest answer I can come up with, perhaps the least um, controversial, is that in Buddhist meditation, people don't cough as much. (laughs) Because they're they're trained, they're they're trained, they're told that now. You you tell that to uh, most Christians, and they get quite angsty. Don't tell me what to do. You know, why, can't I, why can't I cough and blow my nose if I want to? It's my relationship with God that's at stake here. So, uh, But in, the, uh, in, in, in Asian traditions, it's taken for granted that the physical stillness is a necessary uh, little discipline that will n- not only to sit comfortably and to sit for a prolonged period of time, but also to show respect and to be in communion with the other meditators around you. remember a couple of years ago, I was in uh, uh, Myanmar and uh, with a small group of our meditators from Singapore. We were there at the invitation of the archbishops, three archbishops uh, to introduce meditation into the church there, Christian meditation and of course uh the uh culture is dominated by 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 buddhist uh, images and buddhist understanding so i found uh, myself speaking to very mixed uh, audiences so i think the first large group we spoke with at a cathedral somewhere was there you know, there was clergy there were uh, religious, there were lay people, they were young, they were old, they were all sorts of time. And then just before we started, I was trying to work out where to pitch my talk through a translator. And then just before we started, about 40 little children marched in from the orphanage uh, next to the cathedral. So they all sat down right in front of me. So I thought, now who am I going to speak to? Anyway, I, I did the best I could. And then, when it came to the meditation, again through the translator, I described how to do it. And I said, now we sit, now we sit uh, upright, and as if you had pressed a button, these little kids went into this perfect posture, the beautiful straight back. You know, When you teach children to meditate um, in the West, uh, you have to be careful, because sometimes I notice they... They put their heads back like that, you know? And there isn't much emphasis on the physical posture, the physical stillness even, although they have an intuition about physical stillness. But anyway, it was just so beautiful to see these little kids just trained to, to go right into it and knowing that this was a time for quiet, physical stillness, the stillness of the whole body. And then I spoke about the stillness of the mind, uh, silence of the mind, dealing with our thoughts and images and distractions, and of course, then this deeper silence of silence, where we are no longer analyzing our own silence. We're no longer looking at ourselves in the mirror of our mind and saying, now, how am I doing? Or measuring our level of decibels, mental decibels. So, um, so these are, this, is, this is ancient wisdom, but we, it's perhaps even, well, certainly is even more relevant to us today, although maybe more difficult for us to, um, to tune into and to understand the value of it today. So um, this Hezekiah, this stillness, could also be translated as silence. But this stillness or silence that the Bhagavad Gita is talking about which sounds so beautiful, so attractive, so simple. Uh, this, is, this is what um, the Christian monks and teachers uh, discovered. Beginning with the hezekiah of the body, the control of the tongue, and then they spoke about the hezekiah of sight, of vision. You know, you think how many, how often... In especially in an urban environment, or when you're online, uh, we are bombarded. Or watching TV, or we're bombarded with visual images, and uh, we take it for granted. And uh, perhaps most of us, you know, grew up with much less visual, imaginative stimulation than young children do today, and we wonder why they've got <coughs> attention difficulties. So the control of the tongue, but also the control of what we see, what we look at, our wandering mind, our wandering eye, um, and uh, gave, this was why there was a the custody of the eyes was, was regarded as a uh, as a, a useful discipline in the Vichert's, uh, uh in the past, um, and in many Buddhist retreats, you will be told not to look at each other. Uh, so, also uh, a Hezekiah of 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 hearing of the ear, what we listen to, just having the the radio on in the background, or automatically turning the radio on when you get into the car. Uh, um, or plugging your, your, your phone in, you know, and listening to music just in order to, to keep the mind distracted. And, of course, the hezekiah of words, what we read as well. And so today our visual, imaginative, auditory senses are bombarded as never before. One of the first things that we discover, I think, when we begin to practice this Hezekiah, and remember, this is the the interesting center from which change of a kind that we're interested in uh, arises. One of the first things we discover, I think, is the challenge of leisure, doing nothing or not doing anything for the reasons we normally do it. Today, we normally understand leisure as free time, away from business, away from household chores, away from schoolwork, even away from eating or sleeping. Just free time. And in this way, you could measure it. You could measure how much leisure you have in your life. Uh, how much time you spend in sport, or how much time you spend listening to music, or how much time you spend running, or how much time you spend in church. And, of course, we have a leisure industry, which makes sure that we keep busy during our leisure. And, uh, and leisure can become quite an expensive operation, too, when you think of all the equipment you have to buy in order to enjoy yourself. So, uh, that's one modern understanding of leisure, very different from the leisure necessary for meditation, the leisure we discover in meditation. You don't need to buy anything to meditate. Um, We're having a, a, a seminar in... Uh, Sydney in November, Meditatio Seminar on Aging. We're going to have old and young people there discussing uh, the experience and sharing the experience of, of aging. And one of the things that uh, people usually discover as they get older, say when they retire, is the opportunity for leisure or different kinds of activity. Sometimes people just panic at the moment of or just before retirement, because it looks as if they have there's nothing there. Now theoretically, nothing is a good thing if you're a meditator, but in practice, it can be quite terrifying. So um, meditation shows us what leisure means, at its deepest and most transformative. And this stillness, this hezekiah we're talking about, is, I think, this deep rest. It's not just relaxation. You know, we, you could sell meditation easily as relaxation, but it's uh, something much more profound, and transformative than that. It's a work we do ultimately, of course, but it's ultimately God's work in us. The love I speak of is not our love for God, but God's love for us, for he loved us first. So here is you know, a, a, a spiritual understanding of this experience, which not everyone would have, but... I think it's an understanding that illumines it and helps us to understand the deeper meaning of what we're doing. John Mayne, of course, says, you know, it's not my meditation, it's not my prayer. Uh, That transforms the way we see it as well, of course. It's not my prayer, but it's the prayer of Christ, the prayer of the Spirit, into which we enter. So, there is this, this great uh, wisdom tradition uh, in all uh, spiritual families uh, and present very strongly in our Christian tradition about Hezekiah, as John Climacus describes it, as an accurate knowledge and management of one's thoughts. So quite, you know, this is a little bit closer to what you might be able to sell. to to a business um, audience, they'd like that uh, idea. The accurate knowledge and the management of one's thoughts, stillness of soul is a science of thought and of an inviolable mind. Brave and determined thinking is a friend of stillness. It keeps constant vigil at the door of the heart. Well, that is describing, in quite rich and deep terms, uh, what we normally speak of as mindfulness today. So this clarity and harmony of the mind that Hezekiah leads us to, that the Bhagavad Gita was describing, is also the source of misericordia, the word we translate normally as mercy but which we could also translate as compassion, which we normally think of as a very individual uh, responsibility or virtue, but actually also characterizes the nature of a society. How compassionate, how merciful is the society we live in or the institution we're working for? When, uh, some years ago, uh, one of the uh, health boards in, in Britain uh, <coughs> had a t- great scandal of mismanagement and excessive, uh, you know, unusual uh, patient mortality and so on, and uh, financial mismanagement, uh, they called in uh, people to management teams to sort it out, and they brought in uh, I forget his name, actually, but he was President Clinton's uh, advisor or, or Obama's advisor, I think, on health care, uh, and it brought him in as an outside, and he came up with something like 56 different recommendations. And then I heard that uh, he met with uh, David Cameron, and uh, Cameron said to him, so, you know, basically, uh, what?" <laughs> What went wrong in this place? And he said, he replied, a lack of love. So, uh, you know, this, this, this uh, understanding of Hezekiah has a, has a real impact upon the way we see the values of our institutions, not only ethically, but also functionally. Do they work? You know, can a good institution or a good society work without the compassion, uh, the kindness, the other-centeredness, the sensitivity, the humanity that grows naturally out of this um, experience of stillness? So I was saying, uh, I've been saying that we have a rather ambivalent attitude to change. We're, a little n- we're nervous about it, especially when we know that we re- realize that we can't control it. And we try to defend ourselves or insulate ourselves against it, and yet we know that it's um, inevitable. And we want change. We want things to get better. Even in aging, we want to be able to change uh, for the better as we get older and wiser and kinder and simpler and whatever. And we would like children or your grandchildren to change, to develop, to grow uh, in ways that enhance their potential and develop their capacities rather than limit them. So we desire change, but we usually desire it on our own terms. And we rarely, therefore, get what we want. Or if we do get what we want, from time to time, it soon changes. And we realize we can't hang on to it. And this is the root of dukkha I was talking about yesterday, this Sanskrit word that Could be translated as uh, unsatisfactoriness or suffering is inherent in existence. Because even when you fulfill your desires, uh, there's still dissatisfaction. And I think this is an aspect of the biblical concept of sin. The The Greek word for sin, hamartia, which means missing the mark, just not hitting the target. Uh, a falling short, or a a lack of satisfaction. And the problem in this, according to all the great wisdom traditions, is desire itself. And just before we go out for our immersion in the sunshine, I'll go back to the Bhagavad Gita talking about desire. In the bonds of works, I am free, because in them, I am free from desires. The person who can see this truth finds freedom in their work. In the bonds of works I am free, because in them I am free from desires. The person who can see this truth in his work finds freedom. He whose undertakings are free from anxious desire and fanciful thought, whose work is made pure in the fire of wisdom, this person is called wise by those who see. In whatever work he does, such a person in truth has peace. He expects nothing, he relies on nothing, and ever has fullness of joy. What is work? What is beyond work? Even some wise people see this not aright. I will teach you the truth of pure work and this truth will make you free. Know therefore what is work and also know what is wrong work and know also of a work that is silence. Mysterious is the path of work. Whoever in his work finds silence and who sees that silence, Hezekiah, is work, this person, in truth, sees the light, and in all their works finds peace. So, this uh, contemplative wisdom into the heart of change, the stillness that lies at the heart of all things, I think if you're likely to be, have decided to spend a, a week on a meditation retreat, we listen to those descriptions uh, with reverence and with delight and interest. But maybe as you were stretching out there, you thought, well, what's the, you know, what's the relevance of that to the way I live? You know, I'm not going to go out into the forest and with nothing and uh, just build a little seat for myself to meditate in. Um, so what is the relevance of it? And by the time you get back to your place of work or to a big city, then you know, this sort of contemplative, this vision of contemplative, experience, contemplative life, seems uh, rather extraterrestrial. A beautiful description, but maybe, what's the point? I think the challenge is, of course, how we do respond to that feeling of contradiction. Because it is, in many ways, an apparent contradiction from between this vision of contemplative wisdom, contemplative life, and uh, the way we live. Although, if we look into that contemplative wisdom of all traditions, we see that there is not a contradiction. There is a confrontation, there's a meeting between this vision of how we find peace and harmony and justice and stillness and how we live in the world and do our work. This is really very much what the Bhagavad Gita is about uh, the karma of work, uh, but it's also very much what the New Testament is about. Uh, this is what the letter of James says about what goes wrong. Why? do things go wrong why do we get why do we seem to be able to see this uh, contemplative uh, panorama of life we could live like this and surely it's everything we want because the offer the offer here is actually to transcend desire by the transcendence of desire we we find everything we are looking for. So this is how uh, the letter of James describes it. He's asking, uh, where, where does all the trouble in the world come from? <coughs> where do these wars and battles between yourselves first start? He's probably talking about conflicts within the uh, early Christian communities. Isn't it precisely in the desires fighting inside your own selves? Well, this is very resonant with what the Gita was talking about. You want something, and you haven't got it. So you are prepared to kill. There are many ways of killing. You have an ambition that you cannot satisfy. So you fight to get your way by force. Then he goes on, Why you don't have what you want is because you don't pray for it. When you do pray and don't get it, it is because you haven't prayed properly. You have prayed for something to indulge your own desires. So, if you didn't have that last phrase, you have prayed for something to indulge your own desires, we would simply be saying, okay, ah, oh, so what novena should I say? You know, what little magical routine should I follow in order to get what I'm praying for? I didn't do it right. I a little technology here that I, I need some, tech, some expert help with. But his point is, if the prayer itself is fueled by desire, it will leave you with a feeling of failure or dissatisfaction. You won't understand what is happening in the prayer itself because you, you have prayed with desire and fueled by desire to indulge your desire—a very different, um, a very different kind of prayer from the one that we call contemplative or meditation. <clears throat> so this, what uh, the Bhagavad Gita was describing, uh, as Work done without attachment to the fruits of your work. So work done for its own sake, do it as well as you can, put everything you have into it, but then take everything of yourself out of it. That's what the Gita is describing, I think, uh, and which the New Testament describes as care as work orientated, not to indulging your own desires, or acquiring benefits, or fruits, or fame, or recognition, but for others, for the other, for its own sake. And this is the essence of renunciation, of obedience. We were talking yesterday about obedience and the three vows of Benedict and vows Don Paul took on Sunday. So this is, I think, the essence of renunciation and obedience. And it's the essence of the first of the Beatitudes, Poverty of Spirit. Poverty of Spirit sounds negative. Poverty sounds like a lack of something. But it's used metaphorically to describe the condition that allows us to experience the Kingdom of God. So when you're poor in spirit, then you get the kingdom. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This experience is their experience when they are in this state of detachment, of desirelessness, of freedom from selfish desires. The mystical traditions confront In this way, the causes of social division and conflict, institutionalized injustice, and violence, they identify these causes as desire, hatred, and illusion. And these are exactly what we work our way through every time we sit to meditate. If the feeling uh, comes to you after a meditation period or when you look back on your meditation and you say, that was a failure. I didn't achieve this beautiful vision of harmony and stillness and, and silence and hezekiah. Um, I was just sitting there bombarded by, by my distractions. Well, be aware, as St. As John Climacus was saying, guard your heart from that thought. Don't allow that thought of failure to take possession of you because it will wear you down. It will make you give up after a while because nobody likes to do something that they feel they are continually failing at. So, when you have that feeling that the meditation you've just had, or your meditation in general is a failure because you are totally distracted, look at it another way. Drop that thought and go back to the deeper wisdom of this contemplative tradition. And what does that say? That says you are going to have to work at this, because all of the problems, the faults, uh, that we see outside of ourselves, read in the newspapers every day that make us feel the world is uh, spinning out of control, all these things, of course, are within ourselves, in some measure, hopefully not as bad. Not so bad as we see in some extreme incidents, but sometimes that does happen. Um, But they are, as seeds, present in all of us. And some of those seeds start to germinate. Anger, hatred, illusion, fantasy. So we, we have to be prepared for the work necessary to confront those. We have to work through them in every meditation. And if you can sit down to your meditation with that attitude, this is work that I'm doing, and I'm doing this work without desire, you will then make more progress. If you sit down and say, I wonder whether this technique that I'm using now is going to give me what I want as quickly as possible, then you're still being controlled by desire, aren't you? So the desire is the very thing, the attachment, the illusion, is the very thing we're trying to let go of, but if it's the motivation for what we're doing, then our progress or our sense of growth is going to be quite slow. I think it still works, but we just make it's like driving with your handbrake on. You can do it, but uh, it's not very good for the car, and uh, and it's not uh, it's not uh, and it, you, you know sometimes when when you do that you don't take the handbrake off completely, and you wonder for a moment why is the car not moving fast enough. Well, then you realize that take off the brake completely. So desire, far from being our incentive, is actually a disincentive. It's actually a brake. It actually slows us down. It's not how we see. It's not how the (laughs) economy is described. Maybe at that level, the desire is, demand and consumption are different you know, work as forces at a different level, but certainly at this spiritual level, or the deeper human level, uh, these are forces that we need to disengage from in order to find fullness, peace, joy, and the kingdom. And this work, ironically or paradoxically, leads to the deepest kind of change, which we call transformation. (coughs) Change is happening, as we know, all the time. The the clock is ticking. And uh, we are constantly uh, waiting for the next thing that's going to happen, the next change that will occur. We can try to slow down the rate of change, but we know that we can't stop it. But there's a deeper level of change which is not uh, temporary, but is what we would what we call conversion or transformation that is in fact permanent. This is growth. Not just temporary change, but actual human development, actual progress on our human journey. One of my favorite books is the I Ching, the Book of Changes, (coughs) which is um, the oldest of Chinese classic works. One of the most ancient, or perhaps the most ancient divination texts. And um, the symbols it's constructed out of 64 hexagrams, which are symbols probably 5,000 years old, and the first texts and commentaries on them that we have go back about 3,000 years at least. So, uh, a very ancient wisdom It's not about telling you what's going to happen, which is, of course is one way of controlling change, is to try <laughs> to predict it. Actually, I, I looked up uh, to get some information uh, about the uh, texts of the I Ching uh, some time ago. I, looked, I, I, I went to a, a website, and the first thing I noticed was an ad at the top of the home page from the Financial Times. I thought, what a strange place to put an ad for the I Ching. And of course, I realized that probably a lot of, you know, that's why there are so many fortune tellers and astrologers and tarot card dealers on Wall Street. The rent must be pretty high in those places, but they must get a lot of business. So we all want to be able to control change by predicting what's going to happen, but the I Ching is not about that. What the I Ching does in a mysterious way largely through, as Carl Jung said, the force of, of randomness, or the unconscious, is to help us to understand where we are in the cycle of change that affects everything, every situation. That just as the year, you know, goes through this cycle, and. Produce, you know, produces a day like today when everything is bursting with growth and life and, and beauty and strength. Uh, so ev- things, institutions, everyone, our own lives, uh, in a way, follow this trajectory to a peak, and then uh, there's a, a decline. And the the wisdom of the of change change of the book of changes is to be able to see where you are in this, and to accept where you are. Acceptance is key to it, so not trying to control change, but to accept the actual place where you are, just as we accept ourselves as we are when we sit down to meditate. And then, by accepting it, we then, uh, we then grow through even that Period of decline, or degradation, or destruction, or failure. We actually grow through the, you know, the the, the lower end of the of the wheel of fortune, the wheel of change. So <coughs> it's a beautiful um, it's a beautiful uh, comment you know commentaries on these these very ancient and mysterious uh, symbols. Um, in the twen- in number twenty of those hexagrams, number twenty is usually translated as contemplation. And if you look up, uh, if you look up uh, the commentaries on this uh, hexagram, it gives some very interesting insights into the meaning of contemplation. It describes. Uh, it describes the space in a Chinese ritual sacrifice between the, uh, the ablution or the libation, so the, what we do at the mass when we wash our hands. So that preparation period, uh, the space between that and the, the offering of the sacrifice. And contemplation occupies that space. That's where we enter into pure contemplation. And it is a kind of empty space. It's an empty space that gives us perspective, that gives us a view. And this is actually one of the symbols of the hexagram is a tower. So, contemplation gives us this extensive panoramic view of where we are, from the center of the place where we are. But it's in this empty space within the ritual between purification and the offering of sacrifice. Um, This is something that this idea of emptiness is found in all of the great contemplative traditions as well. Emptiness, no self, is uh, no independent self, is one of the features of existence in Buddhist thought, for example, anyata, emptiness, which makes some people think that Buddhism is, is a nihilistic uh, philosophy. At the end of the day, there's nothing. But emptiness is not nothing. So emptiness is what? Depends how you look at it, I suppose. Is is the glass half empty or half full? Do you see the emptiness, the, the half emptiness of the glass as loss or failure? Because you've already drunk it which in one sense it is, but do you also see it as potential? The potential for filling up. So what is emptiness except the capacity for fullness? And fullness, in a sense, will, will lead us, uh, if we use it, consume it, will lead to emptiness. So this is something, uh, so, that, so this, this concept of emptiness is very uh, close, again, I think, to the first of the Beatitudes, Poverty of Spirit. It's what the Christian contemplatives have seen as the work of contemplation or the work of, of the prayer of the heart. That This is something we actually work towards actually embrace the state of emptiness because, as Meister Eckhart says in his first um, sermon, this empty space is the womb of change. So this is where things grow, where potential, which may be invisible at one point, but where potential begins to be transformed into actuality, where it actually happens and becomes visible and tangible. And in this uh, first of his great sermons, Meister Meister Eckhart says that in meditation we become pregnant with nothing. Pregnant with nothing. That was reminding us that we can only speak about these things at this level with, you know, through paradox and, and in his case, with a lot of humor or um, contradiction at times. But, he says, it is in this nothing that God is born. That God is born in the soul. And here is a change that is not just a temporary change as this happens in the human person, and as it is meant to happen in the human person, in this emptiness where God is born, isn't, that is not just a temporary change, a state of mind. It is actually transformation. So here we, we, we step outside the I Chings a uh, concept of just the wheel, the cyclical wheel of change that keeps on repeating itself, and we enter into the biblical vision of existence as moving towards an ultimate point of unity, of union, of communion, of transcendence. There is a, a linear journey that we're making through life, but as we make this linear journey through life, of course we are also we're sort of rolling our way through it we are going through this cycle these cycles of change as we do in meditation you know you'll have a period in even within one meditation or a period for a few weeks or a few months or a few years where you may find that uh, your know, meditation isn't uh, giving you very much or it's just hard work but then that sort of rolls over into a period of, of great breakthrough, of, of, of liberation and of, of joy and fulfillment. So and eventually you see this may be a little cycle that's going on within a week, or it may be a bigger cycle that's taking place on a, lo- on a lo- larger scale of time. So the birth of God in the soul is a process or an event an experience that may not be uh, restricted to one particular moment that we could measure, but it's the process that we are entering into and that is entering into us uh, as uh, as we embrace this emptiness, as we do this work of poverty of spirit. And that's the work of the mantra. So in meditation, we become pregnant with nothing, and in this nothing, God is born. And to bring this fully into a Christian uh, understanding, Eckhart goes on to say, God begets his son in our soul. And then, typical of Eckhart, he pushes it a little bit further, he said, God begets me as his son. And that resonates with the the deepest understanding of the Christian contemplative wisdom is that human existence is a process of divinization. So in this uh, contemplative understanding of um, (coughs) meditation as this work of emptiness we all have this potential every human being has this potential and that's why every human being deserves equal respect and has equal value because whatever that individual may be like, however useless they may seem, economically or socially or physically, (coughs) however close to being useless they may may be, they are still a manifestation, a unique manifestation, of the sacredness of human life, the potential of all human life for this um, birth of God in the soul and for the uh, transformation of the human into the divine. And uh, I think I've some of you this before, but it comes back to my mind again. Once when I was in Calcutta some years ago, I was giving a retreat to Mother Teresa's sisters, and uh, she she was a very compassionate but very unsentimental uh, lady and she said now you have to make time to go to our house for the dying because we have some beautiful deaths there so i hope you somebody dies while you're there (laughs) (laughs) so i went there not quite knowing what to hope for but uh, when i arrived it's, it's very beautifully clean and orderly place, and the the, the people, you know, who they had rescued from the streets were being looked after with great attention and care. And uh, the sister uh, pointed out this figure lying on the ground and said, uh, would you, we we found him last night uh, and he's, he's dying Uh, would you go and give him a blessing? So I went over and I knelt down, he was on the ground, and I I thought he was dead because he was totally still and I thought he'd stopped breathing. Uh, So I just touched his shoulder very lightly, tentatively, and then very quickly (laughs) he turned towards me and uh, looked at me as if he was expecting me to come. And looked directly into my soul, into my eyes, with this light of uh, of what of love and of excitement. I mean, he was seeing something interiorly. He had awakened, and uh, so we he looked at me, or we looked at each other for a few moments, and then he, he turned back and lay on the ground, and I probably died very shortly afterwards. So there was no doubt about who blessed who <laughs> at that moment. So, however, you know, uh, valueless a person may seem, you know, after all, happened to be picked off the streets and put into a home. He could have died on the street. Uh, However useless or whatever expense on public public accounts uh, a person may seem, by one measure, actually we all possess this potential for divinization So the question is, and i leave this with you for the afternoon, what is the catalyst? What is it that turns this potential in us into reality? And the best way to answer that is to look at yourself and see what is happening in yourself and what you have learned uh, from your own experience.